Today's Bible reading uh, can be found on page 1758 of the Bibles on your seats. And we're looking at Romans, finishing off the end of chapter 9, so reading from verse 30 and all of chapter 10. It'd be great if you could follow either on the Bibles or on the screen behind me. So Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through to 10, verse 21. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and the words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, 
I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, and I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Thanks, Simon. Good morning, church. Uh, It really is uh, just wonderful to be back here with you. Um, Thanks again for having me and to be able to work through such a rich part of God's Word together. Uh, As we did last week, there'll be opportunity for some some question uh, time uh, later on, so you'll see on the leaflet that there's a little uh, mobile phone number there that you can flick questions through and we can can tackle a couple of those. Um, But I'd actually like to start us with something a little bit different this morning because I want to get you asking some questions with each other. Well, less about asking the questions. I'll ask the question, but I want you to share with each other just... One very simple thing. I've stuck the question on the screen, so it's very clear, easy. Who was the person who first told you the good news about Jesus? And just to be clear, I don't mean kind of when did you hear about Jesus kind of generically, oh, there was this guy called Jesus. Um, But who first told you the good news about Jesus, the gospel? And I'm also not even asking whether that was the time when you believed it or whether you've actually come to that point now. But really, whether you're here still wrestling with that question Um, or are convinced that Jesus is who the Bible claims him to be, I'd love for you just to share with the person next to you. It could be very simple. It was mum and dad. I grew up in a Christian home. They they shared it with me. Or it might have been a friend from work, or perhaps it was just coming along here to church. Not very complicated. We're not going to give it a lot of time, just 30, 30, 40 seconds. Just share with the person next to you. Who was the first person that shared the good news of Jesus with you? All right, I'll interrupt you again there now. Thanks heaps for sharing and if some of you have sort of caught a glimpse of the person next to you that you didn't know before, then that would be a great conversation to pick up uh, over morning tea uh, later on. Um, Thanks for sharing with each other in this way because, and, and we've kicked off like this because at a very simple level, this is what Romans 10 is all about. That we have a relationship with God only through hearing and trusting the good news about Jesus. The Gospel. The Gospel is fundamentally God's promise that Jesus is his appointed judge of, of all humanity and that Jesus is God's gracious provision for our forgiveness. And Romans 10 is all about the need for people to hear and to believe those promises. You need to hear and believe those promises of God and your friends and family and colleagues and classmates need to hear and believe these promises. And it actually flows right out of what we read earlier on in chapter 9 last week. Last week we saw that God is absolutely sovereign. We are utterly dependent on his mercy in bringing us to faith. Now even though the Apostle Paul who writes Romans was, was looking around him and he saw so many of his fellow Israelites rejecting Jesus as God's King... Well, Paul knew that this was no indication that God could not be trusted, that his promises were, were, it was no indication that they were not going to be kept, that he wasn't powerful to keep them or or good to keep them. No, Romans 9 teaches us that God's promises can be trusted because he has always made promises that show that he's in control and God has always made promises that demonstrate that his mercy is entirely undeserved. 
And so today, when we get to the rest of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, Paul helps us to to make a shift of of perspective. Uh, At one level, in Romans 9, he's been helping us to see it from God's perspective as he looks on at humanity and his promises to us. And now he helps us to shift and look at God from our perspective. And, well, I think this is helpful because even in Paul's time, as remains the case for us today that some might draw the false conclusion that, hey, if if God is totally in control of everything, then there's there's nothing for us to do. We're kind of like puppets on a string with with no real choices to be made, no responsibility for our actions. But the Bible teaches us, Paul here makes it abundantly clear that nothing could be further from the truth. We all have a choice to make. Will you receive God's mercy by faith in His promise? And that's the question for us to consider from our standpoint. Have a look with me. Uh, we're going to break this passage down into three sections there. The first one from the end of, uh, from the end of chapter 9, from verse 30 through to 10, 4, where Paul recaps so much of what he's already said throughout the whole book of Romans and he sums it up in verse 3 of chapter 10, the idea of submitting to God's righteousness. And Paul begins what we've read this morning by pointing out a remarkable irony. Let me read... Uh, just those couple of verses from verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. How is that for irony? Like you've got most of the world running around doing their own thing with absolutely no regard for God, no concern of a relationship with Him, and yet He drops the good news of Jesus in our laps. Yet on the other hand, you've got Israel whose national identity is, is entirely bound up in being the one group of people who have a particular relationship with God, and yet the very thing that defined them, they've missed. Why not? asks Paul from verse 32. Because they pursued it Not by faith, but as if it were by works. See, again, Paul's just hammering home the point. It's not that God's word failed or his promises can't be trusted. It's that Israel actually didn't submit to the promise. They did what every human heart tends towards. They presumed upon God. That's what it means to pursue righteousness by works. It's a very simple idea, really, that I think we can relate to. It's the presumption of a relationship. It's the presumption that if, if I do enough good and avoid enough bad, then I'll be okay with God. And it is presumptuous because it presumes that the capacity for relationship comes from within me, in, in my character, my ability, my goodness. Instead, righteousness which we could turn that jargon language into the very simple idea of right relationship with God, a righteousness is obtained not through my striving and grasping and working, but simply as I receive a gift, as I trust the giver. And when you pause and think about it, that's really how all of our relationships work, I think. I think about how presumptuous I would be to think that my wife owed it to me, to love me. Kind of as if I would get it into my head that I could oblige my wife to love me by doing enough chores or or giving her enough flowers. Kind of, I've forced her hand, she must love me. But my wife's love isn't something that I can force or extract. It's something that she can offer and I can only receive it. 
And I think one of the problems with so many of our relationships today is that we, we do think of them as transactions, as the sense in which, well, if I do this, then they'll love me. And we've got to get it into our heads that relationships, well, they're not transactional. Relationship is a gift. We can't grasp at it. We can only receive it. And we can only receive it if we trust the one who gives it. And so there's a warning here for any of us who might be like the people described in verse 2 of chapter 10. They are zealous for God, but with a zeal not based on knowledge. Paul looked on at his fellow Israelites and he said, yeah, they, they were zealous, but it was a presumptuous zeal that thinks that enough volunteering or serving or sacrificing or giving, enough of all of that will oblige God to take care of me. But that's a zeal that is not based on the knowledge of our absolute dependence on the mercy of God, that he would give us the gift of a relationship with him. See, I think ultimately it's a zeal that failed to recognise that the law of the Old Testament, the law that defined the people of Israel, the law was never the destination. It was always a signpost. It was always a signpost pointing forward to its goal and culmination, which Paul helps us to see in verse 4 of chapter 10, is Jesus himself. And and that's kind of the next big idea that Paul turns to. And verse 4 here serves as, as a hinge because it shows that Christ is God's righteousness. Right relationship with God, Jesus, the two are entirely bound up. You cannot have one without the other. And that the right relationship that the law and all of the Old Testament pointed to is found in Jesus. And so when we want to think through what does it mean to to actually receive this righteousness by faith, it's to actually recognise how God gives this gift and how we receive it, that God gives his mercy through the message of Jesus. And as Paul has done so many points through Romans generally and especially in this block of uh, chapters 9, 10 and 11, he takes us to the Old Testament to help us to see the point. Do you see that in verse 5? Where Paul shows us that this is actually how it's always been. To read from verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now, I think our Bibles here give us the little footnote. Yeah, they do, down the bottom of the page there, if that's helpful for you, to see that this comes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. It's basically a summary sentence, God's summary, that if you live in perfect obedience to Him, then you don't need to fear His judgment, which brings death. And now, of course... Well, that starts to sound like the sort of the sort of verse that the sort of thing that someone would latch onto if they wanted to presume upon a relationship with God, right? You can hear how it would go. Something like, "Well, here it is, Simon. Like right here in the middle of God's law, if I obey the law, then I can be in right relationship with God." And it seems that that's how some people were using Leviticus eighteen five. Paul refers to it in his writing to the Galatian church as well. And yet that understanding of it totally misreads the thrust of Leviticus and all God's instructions for his people. True, the Bible teaches us that if we live in perfect obedience to God, then you don't need to fear his judgment. So there is a theoretical possibility of righteousness by the law. If only we weren't all sinners. But the reality which God made abundantly clear throughout the wider context of Leviticus, 
and all that Moses taught and all of the Old Testament is that none of us are capable of perfect obedience. And our only hope is a righteousness that is by faith, which is the contrast that, make, that Paul draws out in verses 6 through 13. And the, to make that contrast, Paul keeps working with the teaching of Moses to show that this isn't some kind of contradiction or inconsistency in the Old Testament. It's not a clash of the Old Testament and the New. It's the way things have always been. Um, this time, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's helpful for us to, remit, to, to kind of bear in mind that Deuteronomy comes 40 years after Leviticus. And if you know the story of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, well, those 40 years have demonstrated exactly what Leviticus anticipated, that sinners can't obtain righteousness by the law. We're rotten to the core. And yet Moses pointed out that, well, the righteousness that God's word spoke of, it it wasn't too difficult for them, it wasn't beyond their reach, to quote him from earlier in that chapter. His point is that Israel didn't need to go, well, someone to go to heaven to get a special message from God. Um, You didn't need to travel to impossible places to gain some kind of mystical knowledge. No, God had given them his word, which contained his promises that declare his mercy. It was not beyond their reach because God had already reached out to them and, and spoken to them through his word. And at every point here in chapter 10 of Romans, Paul shows us that God has ultimately done that for us in Jesus. That's why he can take the words of Moses and insert his own comments that this is in Jesus, this is in Jesus, it's in Jesus. So it's really helpful for us to see that at the end of the day, there's there's no great mystery to understanding how sinners like you and me can possibly have a relationship with the Holy God. We don't need some extra revelation or mystical experience because God has already made it clear through his word. Our relationship with God is not too difficult or beyond our reach because he's reached out to us in Jesus and given us his promises which he has shown we can trust. We simply need to take God at his word, to hear his promises, to trust them. It really is that simple. As Paul put it in verse 9 and 10, as we heard in the kids' talk already, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. What amazing grace! What incredible assurance! I find it humbling simplicity because the sovereign Lord of the universe has exercised his freedom to bestow his mercy on whomever he chooses. We read that last week. And yet it is this simple. All he requires of us is is to bend our knee in submission to Jesus as Lord, believing in our hearts that he died and rose for us. And perhaps that that's even more remarkable given the context of what Paul has been reflecting on, wrestling with, as he's looked on at his religious Jewish family and friends, that this offer of mercy is not simply for those with the right ancestry, those with the right religious pedigree, those who kind of observe the right religious festivals, 
or ever lived an appropriately moral and upright life. No, verse 11, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this clearly has profound implications for anyone here who wants to become a Christian. The offer is open to everyone. Not on the basis of your merit on yourself, how how clean your track record is, how well you brush up and present on a Sunday morning, but no, the offer is on the basis of God's mercy to you in Christ. And God's invitation is simple. To simply submit to his mercy and faith, to, to believe in your heart that Jesus is the Lord who died and rose for you and to be willing to align yourself with him as the Lord who died and rose for you. That's, that's what it means to declare with your mouth or to profess your faith. It's a statement of allegiance. He is the Lord and I'm with him, which shapes all of our lives. If that is actually a step that, that you're wrestling with yourself, contemplating for yourself, I'd really love to encourage you this morning, don't walk out of here today without talking with someone about that, without doing business with that very simple question. But as I've been reflecting on this over these last weeks, I've also thought there is there's something in here that has just got some really profound implications for all of us who continue as Christians. I reckon that for many of us who share the conviction that we are only saved by grace, we are still prone to falling into, to, to use Paul's sort of words, a zeal that is not based on knowledge. Perhaps at a church plant of all places. I mean, let's be honest, half of you are here at crack of dawn setting up you know, chairs and coffee table and band and a whole bunch of you miss half the sermons of the year because you're out serving in kids' ministry. I know that for stacks of you, you're working long hours through a week and, and yet setting aside time to, to meet together in Bible studies, to lead those Bible studies. We can all fall into the kind of the mindset of presumption that because of what I've done for God, well, he owes it to look after me. I know that I myself have been through patches and times of uh, seasons of life like that where I've had to wrestle with that in my own mind. And yet, Christian, I want you to be encouraged today too by the profound mercy of God, that we not only enter his family by mercy, but we remain are sustained and thrive and delight in him by his mercy. For some of us, some of the time, this might be a blow to our pride. This might be kind of the, the clip around the ear that we need to sort of wake up and reevaluate ourselves. But I also think there's a wonderful refreshment in this as well. To know that I don't need to earn God's favour because He has already poured it out to me in Jesus. I don't need to secure my salvation because He has already secured it for me. That I'm not obligated to serve so much as I've I've been set free to serve. And one of the things that stood out for me as I was reading this is, did you notice that there is one line that Paul chose to repeat in chapter 10, verse 11, that he'd already quoted in chapter 9, verse 33? It was a quote from the prophet Isaiah. And of all the things that he could have said in this chapter, 
of all of the passages of the Old Testament that he could have referred to, he repeated this one line from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, when we go back to Isaiah chapter 28, which is a great chapter to jot down and and read in the week to come if, if you want, to see some of the backstory. Well, when we go back to Isaiah chapter 28, the shame that is on view was the prospect of being made to look like a fool before those who scoffed at the faithful prophet of God. The, the, the crowd that looks on and kind of says, ah, what does he know? And yet Isaiah's confidence is that faith in God and his word would be vindicated. God would come through in the end. Those who trust in his mercy and obey in response to his grace will be vindicated in the end. Whether it's hard work and service or suffering and persecution, whether it's the early mornings and the late nights, or just kind of the ridicule from their mates, or, or even just that kind of that pity. Faith in the promises of God will be vindicated. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. God's promises can be trusted. And so press on, Christian, by faith in his mercy. Never to earn his favour, but always because you delight in his righteousness, the right relationship that he has given you through faith in Jesus. That's actually the hope for, for all of us who would bend the knee to Jesus and to submit to his righteousness by faith. And so in our final section today, Paul circles back to those who haven't yet responded in this way. Do you you remember his heartache from the start of chapter 9? His heartache for those that don't yet know the joy of Romans chapter 8 in all its glory? That, that, That assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ? That's kind of what's driving his thinking through here is he's feeling that heartache for those who don't yet believe. Well, verse 14, he he asks the question, how then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And we might pause here and we might say, well, surely, Paul, like, the answer's clear. We read it there in in chapter 9, didn't we? God is sovereign, like a potter with his clay. He can do whatever he likes. He'll make himself known. He'll move in their hearts. He'll give the gift of faith. But that wasn't how Paul answered his own question, was it? Let's read it again together from verse 14. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, because the gospel is simple, that that to call out to God we simply need to believe his promises. Well, to believe, and people need to hear God's promises. To be heard, those promises need to be proclaimed and, and they need to be proclaimed out there in the lives of people that don't yet know God. And so God sends his people. You and I need to go. And as we've already heard from Scarecrow Straw, God has sent his people out with that wonderful image of beautiful feet. What a remarkable privilege to run flat out and announce the news God saves, that the sovereign ruler of the universe, the one who has the power to to put the stars into space and keep the world spinning and give me life and breath, that one with all of that power to bring people into right relationship with himself, he's chosen to exercise that power by using 
very simple people like you and me, to simply speak the good news of Jesus to those who don't know him. So if anyone tries to tell you, as an aside here, if anyone tries to tell you that a belief in God's sovereign predestining work takes away any incentive to share the gospel with people, tell them to read Romans chapter 9 and 10. It's actually the very reason to have great boldness and confidence in, in simply speaking the simple promises of God. Because we know a sovereign God who exercises his power when his promises are spoken. Now, I don't want to spruik too much, but if you would like to read further on that, I've got a whole bunch of these little books here. They're just $10 each. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God on the bookstall, uh, just halfway down the back there. It's a tremendously encouraging read. It's not really about Romans 9 and 10, but it's unpacking so many of the themes and ideas that are coming through here. And it's a great encouragement because it reminds us that we can be confident that simply speaking of Jesus and the good news we have in him, that is how the mighty arm of God works in people's lives. So I want to give you a couple of images to to think about, to to relate to that. Because when you speak to someone about Jesus, when you point them to God's amazing mercy offered in Jesus, you're wielding the greatest power that the universe has ever known, the promises of God. You don't need to be put off by your own inadequacy and or kind of daunted by the prospect of being rejected. Because when you speak the gospel, you become the tool that the Lord uses to do his sovereign work. When you speak the gospel, you become well, you become the hand that is holding the scalpel that he uses to do open heart surgery. Or another image, when you speak the gospel, you become God's arm that swings the hammer that that strikes the nail into sin to nail it to the cross of Christ. When you speak the gospel, to use another image, you become the very fingers of God that massage balm and salve to soothe and heal broken and fractured lives with his mercy and grace. When we simply speak the good news of Jesus, that is the power of God at work in people's lives. And it's not mysterious. It's simply speaking the promises of God in Christ to those that need to hear it. Romans is just chock full of wonderful memory verses, even today. The kids have been reminded of one of them, I think. But I love the simplicity of chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. It's that simple. The sovereign ruler of the universe exercises his mercy when we speak his promises so that others can hear and believe. So that they too can speak his promises. So that others can hear and believe. That is how God's power works. And so, because it really is that simple... We're going to finish up. I'll pray for us shortly, but we're going to finish up in a very similar way to how we got started. I got you to share with the person next to you uh, who you first heard the good news of Jesus from. I just want you to share something else very simple with them. I'm not putting you on the spot, not putting you under the, under the spotlight, but just to get you to, to talk through with uh, the person next to you the, this question that's on the screen behind me. I'd like you to consider for a moment one person that you'd like to be able to speak to about Jesus. 
might be someone that you already know, you've known them for ages, you just love to have that opportunity. It might be someone that you just met and you think, actually, that'd be great. You, you don't need to have a plan yet. I just want you to think of a name. You're not going to necessarily be quizzed by this person next week to see how it went, but I actually want us to start thinking. This is, this is the simple opportunity to speak the simple gospel of the promises of God to the people around us. So, who's one person that you'd like to speak to about Jesus? Take a moment, share that with the person next to you. All right, friends, I'll gather us back together in part to care for those that are serving hard, looking after the children, but also because I'd love to presume that this conversation hasn't ended here. Wouldn't this be a great thing to keep chatting through over coffee? But as we do think about heading out into the day uh, to follow the week to come, how about I pray for us in light of what we've, what we've heard. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the simplicity of your promises to us. That if we declare with our mouth Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that, God, that you raised him from the dead, that you will save us. What a remarkable kindness, and we give you thanks. What an awesome demonstration of your power, and we give you praise. Please, Lord, help us to be people who would never fall into that presumption of relationship and slipping into that mindset that says, well, because of what we do for you, you're somehow obligated to us. But help us to be those who receive what we can only receive by faith. Right relationship with you. Through faith in your promises to us in the Lord Jesus. And Father, as those who have heard your promises, who have received this wonderful news, please help us to be people with beautiful feet. Whether we put on stilettos or work boots or a pair of thongs, whatever the week ahead might hold for us, we pray that you would help us to be thoughtful and deliberate about how we might do the simple yet profound task of speaking to people the simple and yet profound truth that Jesus is Lord. We pray this in his name. Thanks, Chris. We've got a couple of questions this morning. I'm going to ask Simon to come up as um, he can help us answer those questions. Uh, Simon's making his way up. Just let me remind you, if uh, you're visiting this morning and if you'd like to get an email from us, we have a little response slip on the side of our leaflet. You might like to fill that out. And if you have questions that you haven't already had a chance to ask, uh, that response slip would be another way to ask a question of Simon. And you pop those response slips in the everything box on the hall table uh, when you're heading out this morning. Uh, Let me bring up the questions. Now, so I'm going to start with this question. How do we present the gospel to those who think they know God and are zealous for him, but are relying on works righteousness to be saved? You read Romans with them. And I don't mean that dismissively, but essentially that's a great question to ask because that is essentially the heart of the Apostle Paul in Romans. He's, he's writing to a church that is a real mix and one of the, a real mix of people and backgrounds, Jewish and Gentile, and one of the key groups of people that he just wants to share the gospel with is his fellow Israelites who are doing exactly this, um, thinking that they're zealous for God, but as we just read tonight, uh, this morning, a zeal not based on knowledge. 
and, and that's kind of what Romans is about. So I, it's a brilliant question, and the point is to take a leaf out of Paul's book and, and share that great heart for them and seek to keep speaking the gospel of grace uh, into their lives. Thank you. Uh, next question, how do we make sense of chapter 10, verse 9, when we see people who have confessed Jesus as Lord for many years but then walked away from the faith? Yeah, um, I think that's a, that's certainly a confronting and a, and for many of us a deeply personal situation as we as we look on at those that we we love and are concerned for. Um, I think it also raises kind of theoretical questions for us of well, what then of the promises of God? He said that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, I'm I'm going to hold some of that over till next week because I think hopefully you've seen through Romans nine. And 10 already, Paul is really asking the hard questions and that's essentially the hard question that he, he grapples with next week. Um, uh, and, it's, and it's a challenge for each of us uh, to consider how we continue to persevere in faith uh, but also a great encouragement of God's ongoing power and provision as we persevere in faith. So, cracking question but we'll, we'll carry that over to Romans 11 and in a sense sort of uh, let let Paul and let God sort of see how that, that pieces together. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, uh, last one there. Uh, how do we reconcile Romans nine thirty two? They pursued it not by faith, as if it, but as if it were by works. With James, the book of James, chapter two, verse twenty, faith without works is dead. Is, yeah. is dead. Thanks, Carl. Carl's kind of giving me a bit of heads up on this one, just so I could go and um, remind myself of, of what it says in James. And, and it's uh, just for those that aren't familiar with you with with this passage. Um, uh, there's actually a really challenging part in James chapter 2 where that question is raised, you know, are we saved by faith or, or our works? And there's a couple of very pithy statements, um, for example, from James chapter 2, 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Um, and just over the page, um, James will say, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And you might think, that's that's almost diametrically opposed to what we just read. Um, uh, as we unpack them, though, and we see both how Paul describes faith and James describes faith and deeds and works and righteousness, we see that they are actually totally lockstep. They, they've totally got each other's backs, and I use that image because that's how I've found it helpful to re, re, uh, understand this, that in a sense, if you imagine that these guys are here, you know, back to back... They're both... Turn around for me, Carl. Thank you. <laughs> They're both standing for the gospel, contending for, for, for those that would come at them, picture a, a, you know, a brawl in the street. It's just that they're working with two different groups of people. Um, and so at one level, uh, James is actually saying to those who would say, oh, look, I've, I've said that I believe Jesus is Lord. He's saying, well, uh, that's not faith. That's not a profession of faith, that's lip service if it's not actually a reflection of a deep conviction that Jesus is Lord and that conviction is demonstrated by your deeds. And so a lip service without evidence of heart conviction, that's not saving faith, that's, that's just easy words. A Paul is standing back to back with James, fending off a different argument, uh, an argument that says, well, I've done all of this work, and I'm good with God. And he's like, no, 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 that's not saving. That, that work isn't what brings you into a relationship with God. 
And it's really helpful to see, if we had more time we could unpack it, but Romans 1 begins, Romans 16 ends with this wonderful little pithy statement from Paul that his great desire from chapter 1 verse 5, as he describes his own ministry, it's that through Jesus uh, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Literally the obedience of faith for his name's sake. And then you get to the end of the letter and he's summing it up to talk about the great hope that he has. Um, the purpose of the gospel from Romans 16:26 is so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience of faith. And so we see that James and Paul are on about exactly the same thing. A deep, heartfelt conviction that Jesus is Lord such that Whatever we profess with our lips is a reflection of that conviction and that conviction is also reflected in, in lives of obedience, which is why there's, particularly in the next couple of chapters of Romans, we're going to unpack heaps of that. Well, I won't. Carl will have the pleasure of that. Great questions. Please keep asking them. I said last week, Romans, the Bible generally, um, keeps inviting the, the tough wrestling um, with the conviction that God keeps answering our questions. Thanks. Yeah.